Dr. Skip Rizzo is having trouble with one of his patients. It's 1991, and Rizzo is a clinical psychologist at the Coastline Traumatic Brain Injury Program in Costa Mesa, California. This day, he's struggling to help a 22-year-old man who suffered a traumatic brain injury in a car accident. The patient's frontal lobe is severely damaged, wreaking havoc on his ability to focus. Rizzo is using the standard rehab tools of the day. Cognitive exercises done with a pencil and paper, and progress is barely noticeable. Then one day, his patient rushes into the clinic, bursting with excitement. He's brought with him a new toy, an interactive game designed purely for entertainment. It's a Nintendo Game Boy. Rizzo watches, fascinated, as the young man immerses himself in a game of Tetris for far longer than he'd ever been able to pay attention to his boring rehab exercises. It was a breakthrough. Skip immediately recognizes the technology's potential to revolutionize the way rehab is done. And he had another thought. What if there was a way to actually put the patient inside the video game world? The potential for other applications was huge. I'm Walter Isaacson, and you're listening to Trailblazers, an original podcast from Dell Technologies. Firebird 2 to Control Tower. We are about to take off on the highway of tomorrow. Computer movies can be used to show phenomena we can't directly see. Let's enter the program. You think you could reach in and touch them? Total submersion. Complete detachment from reality. The three-dimensional color pictures are extraordinary. Ooh, thank you. It sounds very exciting. Whether it's our televisions, computers, or our phones... We spend a lot of time with our screens. Despite the staggering advances in technology over the last several decades, the flat rectangle has remained a constant. But for decades, pioneers have strived toward creating technology that would take us beyond the two-dimensional into an experience that's immersive and enveloping, less like television and more like an inhabitable world. They call it virtual reality. Now technology has finally caught up with those trailblazer dreams. The mainstream introduction of virtual reality happened in the 1990s when Hollywood caught on to the technology's potential for movie making and began producing virtual reality movies like The Lawnmower Man and The Matrix. But the history of VR actually began a lot earlier than that. It began in the 1950s with an obscure but visionary American filmmaker named Martin Heilig. Before today's high-resolution virtual reality headsets and video game consoles, there was the Sensorama. The Sensorama kind of looked like a phoropter, that piece of equipment your optometrist uses to measure your vision. 
except this contraption was brightly colored with flashing lights and illuminated pictures of faraway places on its casing. And when you sat down on its plastic seat and ducked your head under the hood, it took you to those places in a way no piece of technology had ever before. Drop a token into the sensorama, and suddenly you're riding a motorcycle down the streets of Brooklyn. Look forward, and the road is ahead of you. Look to your left or right, and you see parked cars and pedestrians whoosh past as you speed by. The sounds of the street fill your ears and stereo. The machine rumbles and vibrates as if there's an actual engine beneath you. Your hair is blown back by an unseen fan. Even the smells of the city, the reek of trash and the stench of burning rubber, assail your nose. No one had seen anything quite like the sensorama, but it would have a huge influence on virtual reality's earliest innovators. Mort was a filmmaker. He was trying to come up with a better way for people to be involved in film uh, that went beyond visual and acoustic. Uh, he was concerned that uh, you didn't feel immersed in, uh, in the movie. That's Tom Furness, the man who would become known as the godfather of virtual reality. And he never really did get into the consumer or commercial world. He built a couple of arcade kiosks to demonstrate the concept, but it didn't go much further than that. But it, it was his vision that was so exciting. Around the same time that Heilig was building his sensorama, Furness was working on his own VR prototypes. In the 60s, while he was an officer at the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio, Furness was trying to make fighter jet cockpits less complicated. It was clear from the very beginning that cockpits are a real problem. There's so many switches, so many displays, the pilots flying twice the speed of sound and being shot at and all these kinds of things happening at once. It was just the sheer complexity was just enormous. Misreading a key piece of data or flipping the wrong switch could have deadly consequences. So I started exploring this whole idea, what if we didn't have to have a physical representation of of this information. What if we could make it virtual, like a head-up display that basically moved around? A heads-up display, or HUD, is a system that displays key information to pilots directly in their field of view, usually on a transparent surface. Furnace's idea was to decouple the HUD from a fixed screen so it was always visible no matter where the pilots had turned. It was some of the earliest iterations of virtual reality as we now know it. Of course, the technology wasn't even close to what we have today. It was clunky and heavy and expensive. The pilots would basically have two small old-fashioned televisions attached to the sides of their head with the images from them bounced into their field of view. But despite the technical challenges, the benefits were obvious. First of all, the pilots were, they were skeptical about whether this would work. They said, we don't need this. We don't need to have these things hanging on our helmet and things like that until they put it on and started using it. 
then they realize, wow, this expands my capability because now I have the information where I need it. I don't have to look into the cockpit. I don't have to decode highly symbolic information. I can actually see it in the real world, projected in the real world, and where it really belongs. By the late 1980s, Furness had left the military and was using the technology he had pioneered in civilian applications. By then, there was a new generation of innovators working in the virtual space. They came from a very different background than Furness did, and they were about to bring the gospel of virtual reality to the world in a very big way. Sitting front row in a movie theater in early 1992, VR pioneer Tom Zimmerman is squirming as he looks up at the giant screen. He's watching The Lawnmower Man, and he has a specific interest. The science fiction film tells the story of a mad scientist who transforms a gardener into a sort of cyber god using virtual reality. The movie was cheesy, but it was a hit, and had VR cred as director Brett Leonard debuted a prop called the Data Glove, a genuine and groundbreaking virtual reality device invented by Zimmerman. I was in the front row, and when the actor put on the Data Glove, I was cringing because I could feel him tearing the fiber optics of it. So it wasn't a very good movie, but It was amazing to see something I worked on on the big screen. A decade earlier, Zimmerman had been working for Atari, back when the video game company was at the top of the world. Their groundbreaking console, the Atari 2600, was a smash success, selling in the millions and introducing video games to homes around the world. Atari's ambitions were lofty, They went beyond games played on TV sets. Atari Research Labs was a hotbed of creativity and innovation, and many of the ideas that came out of there were way ahead of their time. And Zimmerman, along with his passion for technology, loved music. I started with a love of music early on. My dad would Even though he was an accountant, the house was filled with music all the time, and he'd pretend he was conducting an orchestra, which planted the seeds of virtual reality for me. Uh, And I used to pretend I was a Beatle playing guitar. And I had this fantasy of, wouldn't it be cool if when I wiggled my finger, I could actually uh, not only play air guitar, but hear it come out of the speakers. Zimmerman's idea was to create a system that went beyond just keyboards and joysticks. What if he could create a glove that would interpret its users' isolated finger movements and translate them into music? I was in New York at the time, and I was telling my friends about my idea of doing virtual pottery and controlling creatures with my this glove and people thought I was crazy but I came to California and people not only thought I was sane but they wanted to start companies with me. In California, Zimmerman met a fellow Atari vet by the name of Jaron Lanier 
I was at this electronic music concert at Stanford at night outdoors, and someone introduced us, and I told him about this glove I had, and he told me about this programming language, a visual programming language he was working on. And it was, as I say, a peanut butter meets chocolate story. And that was the beginning of VPL Research. VPL Research was one of the first companies to manufacture and sell virtual reality products. In fact, it was Zimmerman's new partner, Lanier, who coined the term virtual reality. The term took on a whole new meaning when they called Scott Fisher, yet another Atari lab mate, who brought in a head-mounted display he was developing for NASA. By wearing a helmet that tracked the movements of your head, you were no longer trapped on the other side of a flat screen. You could look around and actually feel like you were inside a computer-generated environment. It was kind of like a dream state because... It's all around you. With an immersive experience that you get with a head-mounted display, you are always inside the simulation. And it was a, a magical feeling. It's, it's like dreaming. Brenda Laurel, a fellow Atari vet who had gone on to start a company called Telepresence Research with Scott Fisher, remembers the first time she experienced the full virtual reality package. I was immediately immersed in it. It was magic. It brought something together in my mind, which was the the joy and beauty of being an actor and playing pretend in an environment that was so immersive, it, it didn't feel other. It didn't feel like a stage. So it was like improvisation, um, but with a real palpable environment around you to support it. Once the press caught on to what they were up to, VPL became the center of the first virtual reality wave. And pretty soon, the big video game companies came knocking. The Power Glove was a controller for the Nintendo Entertainment System. In the game Bad Street Brawler, you could use it to actually punch the bad guys with your own arm instead of just smashing a button. It was a simplified version of his original data glove, the one featured in The Lawnmower Man. Though it was far from an immersive virtual reality experience, for the first time, regular people without a NASA budget could interact with video games in the ways he'd always dreamed of. One of the greatest experiences in my life was I was walking in the streets of New York City visiting my family, and I saw in Toys R Us, in the window, was my glove, and I had this flash, this, this out-of-body experience that I thought of something, and through this long process, materialized it in the world, and it now is staring back at me. And I felt this amazing connection between the ability to think and conceive of something and through hands and uh, brute force and a lot of luck and teamwork actually manifesting it in the physical world and that that really nailed it for me with the introduction of the power glove and the success of the lawnmower man vr hype had hit a frenzy by the early 1990s linda jacobson is co-founding editor of wired magazine and the world's first professional 
VR evangelist. The media hype was something that, when it was addressed to the public, it was frustrating because it depicted sometimes a dystopian ideal. Lawnmower Man is, is a good example of something that really raised a lot of hope, but didn't really depict the reality of the technology at the time. And the story that Lawnmower Man told was not a glorious story of, of hope and, and optimism and self-empowerment. So it, it was frustrating. But it also was fun to collect all the references and to see the ongoing attention for a while un until the World Wide Web stole everything away. The virtual reality craze of the early 1990s was eventually done in for a variety of reasons. One was that the wondrous psychedelic world that consumers had been promised was simply not achievable with the technology of the time. And anything that remotely resembled it cost in the millions. It was really sad to see VR going into Eclipse, um, but the constraints of the cost of computing in those days was so high that it became impossible to monetize, and that was really what was necessary to keep it going. Second was the rise of a new technology that stole all of VR's futuristic thunder, the Internet. Linda Jacobson. When Tim Berners-Lee introduced and turned us all on to the web and the hypertext world, and everybody started building their own websites or learning how to code and HTML. Um, and uh, that, that uh, definitely took the, the heavy lights of the media, but also of business investment away from virtual reality and focused on the, the brave new world of, of web development. Uh, and as a result, a lot of interest in experimentation at the enterprise level and in the in media and entertainment, that kind of fell off. So much had been promised and so little had been delivered. The crowd had moved on. By the end of the decade, virtual reality had become a bit of a joke with wild-eyed fantasies like the lawnmower man, cited as proof that the whole thing had been a fad. But to those determined to keep the dream alive, virtual reality wasn't dead, it was just in hibernation. And away from the public eye in laboratories and hospitals, research was being done that would expand even the most optimistic visions of what the technology could do. And that's your NPR news Back in Costa Mesa, Dr. Skip Rizzo was sitting in his car when he heard the radio interview that would change his life. Inspired by his patient success playing Game Boy, he'd quickly recognized the traditional rehab practices could be disrupted with video game technology. There was just one piece of the puzzle that was missing. The first time I ever heard the term virtual reality was an NPR report where Jaron Lanier was being interviewed in Japan. He had set up a, um, it was sort of like a virtual kitchen application where the, 
the mission was customers could go into this department store and build their own kitchen using a VR headset and data gloves. And when I heard that, I mean, it was like one of those driveway moments. Uh, I was going to I was going to work out, and I was sitting in the driveway at the gym, and I couldn't I couldn't get out of the car. It was like this is exactly what we need. This is like the future of how we're going to do rehab and, and clinical care. But the timing wasn't right. The world and the technology weren't close to being ready. That was 1996, and uh, but you know the downside was it. 1996 is also what I consider to be the kind of the start of the nuclear winter of virtual reality. You know, there was so much hype and excitement about it in the early 90s. You know, it was going to change the world and we're going to have lawnmower man-like experiences. But, (laughs) you know, the reality was the technology was not there to deliver on the vision of virtual reality. But with that in mind, the vision was sound. Um, you know, it, it, the idea of using VR simulations, not just for cognitive rehab or physical therapy, but for anxiety disorders and phobia treatment and PTSD and pain distraction, all those ideas made a lot of sense. So what happened was a number of folks around the world, maybe a couple hundred, um, still carried the torch for VR. Rizzo was one of those torchbearers. For years, he had kept the flame alive talking up the technology's boundless potential to anyone who would listen. When I used to have to really sell the idea of VR in the late 90s, early 2000s, like when I'd go to American Psychological Association, you know, I'd be doing a talk, and I'd say, okay, when you're flying home from this conference, would you prefer that your pilot learned uh, the cognitive and emotional skills for dealing with wind shear from a simulator and was certified in a simulator or would you prefer they learned it out of a book or from on the job training or from a lecture uh, you know that people people started to get it back then by the early 2000s the technology had come far enough for Rizzo to begin implementing some of his ideas in earnest one of his most successful projects was a therapy program called Brave Mind which uses virtual reality to treat post-traumatic stress disorder. It's a high-tech take on an established practice known as exposure therapy, in which patients are encouraged to reimagine the scenarios in which they were traumatized and verbalize their experiences out loud. By revisiting the incidents over and over again, they're able to process their memories in a healthy way loosening the trauma's grip on their minds. Brave Mind does something traditional exposure therapy could never do. It places the patients, many of them veterans of the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, in a simulated environment where they relive their traumatic experiences with the guidance and safety of a professional always present. As the patient narrates their experiences, a simulator technician adjust the scenario in real time. And the patient might say, I'm driving down this deserted desert roadway towards a small village, and there's a lot of trash by the side of the road. Click, there's trash by the side of the road now. Um, And it was right around dusk, so the visibility is kind of low. Click, it's dusk now. 
And there were three people in the Humvee. Bang, three people in the Humvee. And as they're going, and I had a funny feeling, and I felt like I was going to, I don't know, I just felt contained with all this trash. And all of a sudden, I realized this trash was was like a camouflage for uh, a large IED that was ignited and blew off half of the side of the Humvee and killed my two best friends, you know. Then you, you blow up the, the bomb to the right of the vehicle. Uh, you hit a couple of buttons that have screaming sounds if patient is ready for that, or signaling sounds or radio calls or whatever. Rizzo has seen miraculous results. As you do it repeatedly over and over, eventually it doesn't activate the same level of anxiety. And then as that happens, people start to feel empowered. You know, they start to feel like, okay, I can get through this. I can get over this. I had a win today. Brave Mind is now used in more than 100 military bases around the world. And it's just the tip of the iceberg for virtual reality's potential as a therapeutic tool. In recent years, innovations like Oculus Rift and the HTC Vive have brought the tech to our living rooms. Even our phones can be used for VR with kits like Google Cardboard, a low-tech solution that turns any smartphone into a VR viewer. And to Rizzo, that means his clinical work has just scratched the surface of what VR technology can do. It's kind of like a toaster, you know, you might not use it every day, but every home's got one. Well, maybe that's what a VR headset will be like, you know, that everyone will have one, it'll be adopted, you might not use it all the time, you might not even use it for gaming, you might use it for other purposes. Today, virtual reality is used by surgeons to map out complex operations, by theme parks to create new dimensions for their roller coasters, by schools to create virtual classrooms, and even as an advanced tool to teach the principles of empathy by virtually placing the user in another person's shoes. For Tom Furness, who started with Air Force cockpits and has worked in VR for more than 50 years, the technology is still in its infancy. The advent of these new technologies like the the HTC Vive and the Oculus Rift and the portability uh, coming uh, into those devices now, it's almost, well, not only is it vindication <laughs> of the original uh, visions that I had that this would actually work and it can make a profound difference, but it has gone so far beyond that in applications I never had conceived of at the time in, the, in these earlier days. And it is really gratifying to see that. He and the other pioneers of VR spent decades pursuing a seemingly impossible dream that we will one day be able to create our own worlds, bound only by our imaginations and then enter them at will. Now that the technology has finally caught up with their vision, reality of all sorts, virtual or not, is about to get a whole lot more fascinating. I'm Walter Isaacson, and you've been listening to Trailblazers, an original podcast from Dell Technologies. 
In the next episode, we take you into the world of modern sleep disruptors and examine the journey from the mattress industry's humble utilitarian beginnings to the waterbed craze of the 1970s to NASA's role in today's mattress technology. And if you want to find out more about any of the guests we've talked to on today's show, you can head to our website at delltechnologies.com slash trailblazers. That's delltechnologies.com slash trailblazers. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.